This is also a good time to tell our audience, and Josh can decide whether to put it or not. We're now on a Zoom conference, and each one of us has our names. Uh, I have Liel by my picture. Stephanie has Stephanie Butnick. Sarah has Sarah Ader. Mark has Mark. Josh has Liel's mom. <laughs> she tells you everything you need to know. This, this has really about brought this out the best in all It took of us. you 35 minutes to notice that. <laughs> Are we ready? This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, in the bunker in the basement of Oppenshire Manor, Oppenshire Studios. Joined this week by tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. I, th- I see you really trying to make Oppenshire Manor happen, and I think this is your month to do it. Basically, <laughs> the Corduroy Rav resides at Oppenshire Manor. That is that is the court. The court is really some, trying to make that happen too. The Lubavitchers. I see it. I'll allow it. The Lubavitchers have 770 Eastern Parkway. I have Oppenshire Manor. Tablet senior writer. You have 123 Main Street. Liel Leibowitz, where are you right now? I am Dallas Amot from you. I'm a hand breath away, socially distancing appropriately. In my house. In your house. It with is my drink. Monday night. We've got we've got the big five. Me, Liel, Stephanie, Sarah Fredman Ader, and Joshua Cross all on Zoom in our respective lairs, lasting until the end of the world. Just Lair is going to lair. <laughs> That's right. This week, we are with you in a time of self-quarantine and sometimes not so self-quarantine. Uh, Sarah, of course, being in uh, in Westchester County at the, the epicenter in the Northeast. And we are uh, we're here to comfort each other and to you. We are digging deep into the unorthodox mailbox and sharing some of our favorite letters from all of you from the past month and one terrific superstar guest this week, Tablet's own Yair Rosenberg, sometimes known as the Dean of Jewish Twitter, just generally slapping down neo-Nazi trolls on Twitter all the time. He's also a great writer and a great songwriter. He has a new album out of Jewish tunes inspired by Mumford & Sons, Irish folk melodies, and much more. He's going to share his music with us. Five times the unorthodoxime gathered in our basements and I think we all need to give each other a Corona update because we never see each other in the office anymore. So Stephanie Butnick, how's your COVID-19 going? So, well, hopefully not at all. Um, but I have been pretty much on, not like lockdown, but Ben and I have been going out once a day since about Thursday. So now we're, we're talking, What day, I have actually no idea what day it is. It could be, <laughs> days don't exist anymore. But you know, I'm, I'm at my new recording studio. That's my nightstand, which has been like, uh, tables have been moved. Things have been moved around. We have a very good like double co-working space with room for the cat. But the interesting thing that's been happening is like, look, I'm lucky enough to work from home and I'm, I'm really, really grateful for that. But the thing that happens when you work from home is that there's no delineation of time. Nope. Like I wake up, I check my email, I go to my desk, um, that's the table outside, and I start working. And then Ben and I were like, oh shoot, we should eat something. So we'll like have a little lunch at our desks. And then all of a sudden we looked at the clock today, it was like 6.40. And we said, oh shoot, let's, I and mean, we don't say shoot, we say something else, but let's make dinner. And so I also feel like I have my day job, like this, it's 10.30 right now, PM, let's be real with with our listeners. Right. And now this is like my night gig, which is podcasting with you guys. So this has like been a 20 hour work day at this point for me. And I, I imagine that's happening to a lot of people too. It's not like you have a lunch break, you walk to work. I mean, I don't know what time, I don't know time, I don't know days. See, can I tell you, Stefani, I feel exactly the opposite. I am I know this is a very difficult time and, and I pray that this would be, you know, resolved peacefully for all of us, but... I feel so incredibly 
holistic. Like here we are, instead of running around like crazy, like let's put the kids on a bus, then run to work, then record a podcast and have a meeting, then come back, then pick up the kids and cook dinner. Like all these things that need to happen sequentially and they're all overlapping and you can't actually be present for any of them. Like here you are, you wake up in the morning, you cannot leave the space and your kids are here and then you have to homeschool them, which is of course always been my dream. So you're present with them and you're here because you can't not be because they demand it. And then you stop and you have lunch and everything just is, I don't know, everything seems more human. Mark, are you feeling me with your 17 children? I'm with you there, Liel. I mean, I've I've taken some guff on our Facebook page for uh, the little mini episode that I released the other night where I said, you know, actually in many ways, if you are fortunate enough, and I threw in disclaimers, sincere disclaimers, if you're fortunate enough to not have to worry about money or, or your wages yet, Correct. and you're healthy so far- mm-hmm. You can seize some moments where actually you're not going to the stupid meetings that waste everyone's time at the office, um, where you are actually not cramming in 20 minutes with your kids, but getting to, has to to feel the rhythms of the day with them, where you spend some time with them, then you sort of go off into your own corners and they do some reading and you do some of your work and then you come together again for meals. I mean, look. The, the history of the world is the overthrow of geography, right? Like we used to be more isolated from each other and then vehicles and then phone lines and then internet, like bring us closer into proximity all the time. But it used to be, you know, many people lived far from each other, didn't see many people but their family, homeschooled their children, apprenticed them out in the, the dairy farm or whatever, I don't know, and, and like lived as units in a way that didn't separate everything out to like, now you'll go off to school 180 days a year. You know, I feel like there is a kind of integrity to the day when it's like, okay, we're a family of seven. How do we have a rhythm to the day where we enjoy each other's company and don't eat each other alive? And I think so far the Oppenheimer seven are doing okay. Josh Cross, you're you're on the line with us here. What you, you're in the but see, Sid and I always say, thank God we have a house and a yard. What must it yeah. be like for those people stuffed with their kids inside eight hundred square feet in New York City? And that's what's happening with you. Three kids. One is a bratty teenager. One is a bratty one who thinks she's a teenager. And 1,300 square feet. And three scotches later, and I'm feeling better. Oh, you got a quarantine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, TikToks have gotten boring already. Um, but no, we did some homework assignments. The benefit is, and I think this is the, to harken back to something we did a few weeks ago, is thank God I have a dog. Because I'm allowed to go outside whenever I want. Because I have a dog who needs to pee. I will say that this is a very good time to foster a dog if you live in a city and you normally like have to go to work all the time. I think dogs planned all this shit. I think like how could we make it so that everyone stays home? <laughs> make with the humans us eat a bat months. Uh, right. The humans are pretty dumb. Just make them eat some shit and then they have to stay indoors. Who's a good boy? I think Sara might disagree with us though. I just I think it's so great that you guys have been leisurely spending times with your family without <laughs> outside interruptions. Sounds like a wonderful experience. Um, it's not been mine. Tell us about yours. Sorry. In Scarsdale, in the Westchester quarantine. Sorry, Fredman Ader. What's going on with you? I have built out every single day for my children a very by the half hour schedule, which I think will come surprise to none of you. But either I can't do either of my jobs or my graduate school work because I'm giving them full attention or I'm trying to do my jobs and my work and they're screaming that I'm not looking at them. This is week two for you, right? My kids have been out of school since March 3rd. Hold on. So you're the Italy to our America. Like we're here be like, oh, it's all going to be OK. We're and you're like, on our balconies just, out here. It's great. just wait. Right. Because you're in the the first area on the East Coast to be under a kind of 
semi, not mandatory, but highly encouraged lockdown, right? Yeah, we had um, the first big spread in New York. It's always good. You know, we got blamed for the measles. Now we're getting blamed for coronavirus. Um, But there are at least 10 cases in my kid's school. And the quarantine actually ends today. We're out of quarantine just as the rest of the world is going in. And I was when we first got into quarantine, the thought was like, oh, great. By March 17th, we can have our babysitter back. We can even if we can't go back to school, we can get there's no real difference. Is your husband still on the road with his job a lot or has he been detailed home as well? No, PwC has stopped all client travel as well. So are you guys trading off with the with the kids or how's that working? That's yeah, it's working pretty well, but the amount of screen time for educational apps that my kids are getting is unreal. <laughs> Here's the screen time question I have. Everyone's kids are now taking classes on Zoom. What computers are they using? Like how many computers, do people have an extra computer so that their kids can take classes? Or is that like your computer? I just got a new computer at work. So they're using my old Mac. In our case, we have, let's see, Rebecca has her own computer. And then we have one other kind of Google Chromebook and then an iPad, which sort of get used around evening for various screen times. But we're not really set up for Ellie to do homework at home on a computer. But Ezra Academy, her fabulous Jewish day school, which has been heroic through all of this, let her take home a MacBook. So she's been uh, Zooming in with her teachers all day. There's anxiety and she'd like to get back into her routine, but I think her education has not suffered a whit. Rebecca's school, her public school, which is kind of a STEM academy, uh, sent home a ton of homework, but they're not Zooming or anything. They're just like doing homework and she's she's just reading novels when she finishes her work. So, you know, tonight she's like, what should I read next? And we said, have you read Catcher in the Rye? And she said, no. And we yanked it off the bookshelf and are like, Get, us, get a good start on high school alienation, kiddo. Sid's also been really good about making a schedule with, with different blocks of time for homework, for reading for pleasure, for running around the outside. I added two things to the schedule that Sid made. One is I said, let's do Havdalah on Saturday nights. Let's add that into our religious routine. We do Friday nights. Let's also do Saturday nights. And then the other thing is that I told uh, Rebecca that she was going to get a mini course in the important 80s movies that I'm always referencing. Oh, God. (laughs) So every other night we're going to do some flick, you know, Amy Heckerling or John Hughes or whatever. Last night we started early, 1984, earliest important Molly Ringwald with 16 Candles, which would never get made today. So offensive. Oh, boy. So offensive in so many ways. And Rebecca totally got it. She's like, I get it. This wasn't offensive back then. The movie's hilarious. Not sensitive to today's politics, but it was awesome watching 16 Candles with with Rebecca. And so Havdalah and 80s movies are my uh, syllabus contribution. Uh, What about you guys? What's the homeschooling looking like? So, you know, I'm a prepper in so many ways, more ways than one. That's just what I do. And that's just who I am. And homeschooling these children has been my lifelong dream. And so when this opportunity hit, I was like, this is, this is like the greatest <laughs> fucking moment ever, right? It's going to happen. I have to say my kid's school, Heschel, has been incredible. Lisa and I jumped into the fray doing kind of like homeschool 2.0. I, I want to say two things here. They sound, I think, mutually exclusive, but they're not. So on our end, it's been amazing. The school has sent a lot of work, which keeps these kids busy pretty much through mid-morning. And then we came up with this like crazy amount of projects that we want to teach them. It's like early American history, weekly Parsha class, independent research project in which Lily studies the Ming Dynasty and Hudson studies foxes. Like, it's just great. And it's like filled (laughs) with these like wonderful things that get me like so into it. And like elementary Aramaic, intermediate (laughs) Aramaic. (laughs) Exactly right. Advanced (laughs) Ugaritic. However, you know, while this is 100% my jam, 
I think like thinking about this in retrospect, I see so many people, especially like on Facebook, stressing out over this. I really think there should be like one rabbinic halachic decree, which is this. If you manage to get your kids to not be traumatized by the next two months, you are an awesome fucking parent. That's right. If what you need to do to get that happening is 17 hours of Dora the Explorer Day or whatever the fuck you want to give them to watch, who gives a hoot? Like, do whatever you need to do. Enjoy your time with your kids. If they can learn a little something in the meanwhile, that's awesome. Look, I grew up during the Gulf War. I didn't have school for like seven months. <laughs> and look at you now. Bomb shelters. Uh, and look at me now. I'm a crazy guy with a beard ranting at a computer. The New England perspective is it's like those years when we get snowed out for the whole month of January. Right. And you hunker down and you talk. I've told my kids more about their relatives than they ever wanted to know <laughs> in the last week. They're like, great grandpa was married how many times? Six times. Like, that's right. Josh, what about you? Any tips on the homeschooling or the home survival? Let me just say I really like that it, this looks like this is going to be the most producer-heavy beginning of the show ever, and I'm, I'm proud of that because we've got lots of kids in lots of different school situations. It's been a free-for-all all weekend, basically because I spent the entire weekend tweeting at de Blasio saying, you're the worst fucking mayor ever. Close the schools. And he did eventually. And I'm sure he listened. That's what- uh, Yeah, that tweet was what did it. That's what did it. <laughs> But once they did that, we started off strong this morning, which was Debbie put together this whole Greek art thing, and they were learning about the Oracle of Delphi and stuff, and the girls did that for a while. And Violet, who's been sneaky and been like, oh, I don't know nothing, is like, yeah, I read that in the book about the Greek myths, and she knows everything about the fumes coming out of the whatever. So we got that one. We did some math. We did some other stuff. But does she know the Breakfast uh, Club? She, real genius is coming up for us. <laughs> we'll, we'll go there. Then by the afternoon, we were just like, just... Just just go use the DS. Go use right, the Switch. Right. Get get away from me. I need to do a thing. Are just those video game consoles? Oh, yes, they are. See, here's the other thing. In our day school, it's like, okay, do you want the new Animal Crossing that's coming out on Friday? This is the kind of schoolwork you're going to have to do to earn this video game. What is everyone's school called? Like, if you had to name name what your program is called right now. Yeshiva Tchovave Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is the letter F with about... 18 U's and then CK. Oh, God. You. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, base Ringwald. <laughs> base, Mine is like, base hope Smalley. everyone's happy and please, please, please appreciate me. Sara, we appreciate you. Here's some baked goods. I have a lot of butter, Academy. Yeah. So the other thing about being home is that like I'm finally dealing with like my piles of mail, which is like bills that apparently I'm supposed to be paying. Um, and I also got my census form and that was very exciting. Um, I don't even know these things get like stashed somewhere like you know I leave them all piled up somewhere um and I was very excited to do this because I I don't I think I maybe I was supposed to have done this before but I never did and so I went in and you could fill it out online and I'm filling it out okay first name last name blah 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 and then it says what is Stephanie T. Butnick's race select one or more boxes and enter origins so I clicked white because that's the one that made sense for me and then like Jew and Great Neck. Well, they end. Well, so listen. <laughs> the, underneath it, the, you check the box, but there's also like a, a you know a multiple choice situation. You say it says enter, for example, German, Irish, English, Italian, Lebanese, Egyptian, etc. And so I was like, huh? I you know it's sort of we've been talking about Bernie Sanders. Like my family is from Poland and like Austro-Hungary. I don't really identify with any of those places <laughs> being my my racial or like my ethnic origin. It actually texted my family group chat and I said, hey guys, what, what am I supposed to, like, WTF should I be filling out here? And 
My sister said Eastern European question mark. Right, because yeah. the polls the polls want us claiming Eastern European, right? Which is technically true. And then my dad just wrote Long Island. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, yes, I do feel more like I'm from Long Island than I'm from Eastern Europe in a very deep, profound way. But so you should be Eastern European in parents until 1939, <laughs> Middle Eastern from 1945. <laughs> yeah, like don't don't look don't look up what happened after that. But like, no, don't. So right. I wrote Eastern European, but I feel a great discomfort about it. That being said, I don't know that I wanted to put Jewish. Like that felt like a bit of information that no one deserves. Like that the government this, just doesn't need to have. Why do they need right. to have that? I'm not, I'm like not going on some list. You, you, don't, you don't want to be identified with that. But I'm not happy with my choice. It's, it's a question designed to kind of fuck with the Jews, isn't it? I mean, we spend all our time trying to figure out exactly what are we anyway? Are we an ethnicity, a tribe, a nation, a race, a family, uh, whatever? And the government's coming into our kitchen and making omelets and quizzing us on on our race. It's like, Speaking look, of it, is, is hungry a choice? Yeah. <laughs> What are you? It's like hungry. Mostly hungry. I'm quarantined and I'm snacking. For me, it's Middle Eastern. I mean, you know, where else am I from? But if they have Lebanese, then Middle Eastern is in the category. So I'll be wandering Jew. It's funny. I was thinking about my friends. So I was thinking about Irene. And I was like, what would Irene write? And I was like, oh, Irene's parents' families are from Greece. So she would write Greek. But she's not writing Greek Orthodox. Like my friend Kat, she'd write like, my dad is Irish and my mom is from Paraguay. Like that is so much more clear cut than me where I'm like, where am I from? Should we be writing Hebrew then? <laughs> Israelite. Is- Israelite. We should be yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there are two choices. There's Hasidim and Misnagdim. And you have to choose one, really. Mine says married, married into a Kohen. <laughs> Vic, 60% Lubavitcher, 20% best lover. The rest is just yeshivish. 97.1% Ashkenazi, never forget. 914-570-4869. How do you answer this on the census? part of the show where we usually tell you all the cities that we're going to be coming to, um, either for live shows or book events or more. And sadly, all of our events at the present moment have been postponed for the next few months. So we're really, really sorry about that. And what we're going to try to do instead, as you probably have noticed, we've been dropping a bunch of mini episodes about every other day in your podcast feed. We're going to try to do some more Facebook Live sort of like drop-ins so that you can see us um, and we can talk to you. And we're also working out other virtual ways that we can still find community together because I think that's what's so important through all of this. Obviously, we can't be there with you in person, but we are there for you during this difficult and confusing and scary time. We will let you know the minute our events get rescheduled and hopefully we can be back on the road soon. And honestly, J. Crew, if there's anything that you think uh, we should be doing right now, anything you would like from us, anything that would make your quarantine time a little bit brighter, let us know. We're here. We're listening. This community is going strong even as the streets empty out. Yes, we hear for you. If you have any crazy stories that you think we should play for the audience, any uh, any quarantine anecdotes that will blow our minds, happy, sad, or otherwise, call us, 914-570-4869. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated best play. 
Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. News of the Jews, N-O-T-J, News of the Jews. News of the Jews. Uh, poor Yeshiva University, the Maccabees. They make it to the NCAA Division Three tournament. They win what? Two games. They were in the uh, the Shlomo 16, the round of 16, and um, then there's no more tournament. So technically they won. They're tied for first with 15 other teams. <laughs> this is literally the question, you know, if a tree falls in a forest and nobody hears it. Like, if a Jew wins a basketball game and no one sees it happen, like, are they the champion? This is the Talmud. Like, 17 rabbis could discuss this forever. You know who didn't win anything was the Museum of the Bible, this very weird museum owned by the Green family, which owns Hobby Lobby. They've been collecting fragments of what they thought were the Dead Sea Scrolls. It turns out, according to uh, a study reported in National Geographic magazine, that basically all of their Dead Sea Scroll fragments are forgeries. So the Museum of the Bible, which was always a weird kind of culturally appropriative evangelical Christian Bible shack anyway, uh, also worthless for your scholarship. I mean, the Amazon box ought to have given it away. (laughs) Why are these things arriving via FedEx? But okay. The story was so weird, too. The story was like, all of a sudden, they appeared on the antiquities market in 1993. It's like, you know... (laughs) Somebody there could have been a little bit less credulous. Someone there needed the savvy of Herb Goldsmith, for example. In this week's Letters from Uncle Myron, your uncle who writes to you to tell you about how the Jews are responsible for everything good in the world, we find out that Herb Goldsmith has died. Who is Herb Goldsmith, I ask you, Stephanie Butnick or Leah Leibowitz? Only members know that. Only members. So Uncle Myron says Herb Goldsmith is the man behind the members only jacket, the brand members only, which I kind of know it as it came back like a few years ago. Um, totally so I back. don't know. I don't know the original version, but I definitely owned some members only stuff. And it basically was this like this jacket and he had Frank Sinatra. He got all these celebrities to wear the jackets and they like he was actually the original influencer, I want to say, because he was like, if I wear if I get celebrities to wear my stuff, people will know like the company and the brand. It was really successful. Hey, hey have you tried it? Herb Goldsmith, creator of the Members Only Jacket, we will be saying many, many mortars cottages for. The Kaddish Yotam that we can't say because we can't go to Minion, we would be saying for you. We hope that you are dressing people well in the great hereafter. The members only of the tribe. So speaking of things we cannot do, uh, say the mourners' Kaddish is one of them. The other thing is weddings. In Israel, for example, they have banned uh, any congregation of more than 10 people at a time at one place. But what would you do if you had 100 people about to attend your nuptials? Any ideas? Uh, like go on a balcony, try to, no, like, these I'm are trying Jews. to think, I'm trying to think, where can you go? And these are Israelis who are very, very, very good. Divide at, them at, into two know. teams and have a really long rope and have them play tug of war spaced six feet apart. That would be awesome. But in Israel this week, uh, a bunch of very 
crafty Jews, said to themselves, what is the one place where a hundred people are actually permitted to congregate? And the answer, of course, is, well, the supermarkets allow a lot of people because people need to buy food. And so a wonderful young couple this week decided to hold their wedding in the supermarket (laughs) right by the produce aisle, and a hundred people came, and it was a very joyous occasion. That's the freaking best Israeli hack. That's that startup nation shit. That's amazing. <laughs> right? It's like, eh, but maze supermarket wedding. Broken glass clean up on aisle 12. Without a doubt, our most famous co-worker is Yair Rosenberg. He's a senior writer at Tablet, and he is a prolific member of the Twitter sphere. He has like a gajillion followers. I don't know how he sort of like became the dean of Twitter, the Jewish dean, but um, that's who he is. So he writes for Tablet, he is all over Twitter, and he actually is an amazing singer. And I've heard him, I sometimes hear him like a little humming, a little like that, that like musical hum across the office. But he actually has a really, really cool project that he is working on. And producer Josh Cross talked to him about that. The first time I met you was when I started it on Orthodox. And I walk into a tablet story meeting and I see a bunch of people that I'm about to meet. And I see one dude I know. I know this guy named Yair. Never met him in person. But I've seen him on Twitter a whole lot. You're a person with how many Twitter followers now? 70,000 at least, right? Yeah. We're not here to talk anything about you being a Twitter rock star. Why are we here? So we're here to talk to me about being an actual rock star. I've been working on an original album of Jewish music, stuff that I sing, stuff that I hope that lots of people will enjoy using and singing in their Jewish gatherings, particularly on Shabbat, uh, because the album is Shabbat-themed. Did you start as a little kid? Were you like the rest of us were at five, was taking piano yeah, no, lessons? No, my parents tried uh, to get me piano lessons, but I was an unteachable child in many respects. Um, but music does run in my family. My grandfather um, was actually a Hasidic composer. So he escaped from uh, Polish-Lithuania through Shanghai with Chabad, thanks to a Japanese diplomat who famously wrote a bunch of visas out against government orders to enable these Jews to escape the Nazis. And he eventually made his way to America. But along this trail, he composed uh, and continued afterwards composing many melodies that are sung by Chabad to this very day. Did he play or was it just singing? I know that he could write music, so I assume he could play an instrument. I don't. I just compose things in my head. On this album that I'm working on, you have stuff that I composed in, you know, a Hungarian supermarket, because that's when it hit me. You have stuff that I composed half the song while I was walking around, you know, Seattle's Pike's Place Market, uh, and then something occurs to me, so I just pull out my cell phone, and I start singing something quietly into it and hoping nobody notices. But it really just depends. I've composed things, you know, walking around concentration camps when, you know, you're struck by the incredible power of the place, um, and that emotion just runs through you, and then it comes out in whatever way it comes out. I can't play any instruments, and it's, you know, it's not the most efficient way to do this, not just for writing the music. I'm fortunate to work with some really excellent collaborators who are vastly more musically skilled than me, one of whom uh, is Arun Viswanath, who some people may be familiar with because he is also the official Yiddish translator of Harry Potter. Um, and then my other collaborator is a fellow named Abela Savit, a phenomenal musician. He was the uh, musical director of New York University's uh, Jewish a cappella group, Ani Viata. If you went to some random synagogue in Lakewood or on Long Island or Wisconsin. It's not exactly the kind of music you're going to hear. 
what are you actually doing here? So I would love to walk into one of those places and for them to be using these melodies, but it isn't exactly the same as what you've heard before because I am trying to meld traditional Jewish sensibilities with other genres of music that often don't get wedded to it, but I think actually work really well. So the second single off this album that is going to be coming out after we're talking here is the Lachador D that I composed, and it has a very strong Celtic Irish folk feel. because it wasn't even intentional. It's just because I love Irish folk music. Um, and I also think there's a lot of affinities with the sorts of uh, stories that Irish music tells and the sorts of emotions it evokes um, and the Jewish story. The, the first single off the album is this Shalom Aleichem, which everyone can listen to right now. Um, and if you listen to it, it's got a very stomp pop feel, if you've listened to, say, Of Monsters and Men. <laughs> the harmonies for some of these things because it's me and two other guys there's very much like a Mumford and Sons feel so you have these sorts of different influences so uh, we've got a crowdfunder going on Indiegogo where people can sign up and uh, support the album and thus you're basically pre-ordering the album and there are a bunch of different perks you can get you can get the base album you can get the album plus a bunch of bonus tracks if you want to have me send you a recording so you can lead a you know Shabbat service I will give you that recording because the idea here is to sort of spread music through Jewish community it's not simply let me spread this music that I make but also help you to share music with your community in the way that you want to do it. Uh, the single, Shalom Aleichem, and then the second single, L'Chad Odi, will be available on all your major you know, music stores, you know, Apple Music, Amazon, Spotify, and so on. Hopefully that will be there soon. So make it easy for me. Where can I send people to go check out the Indiegogo and anything else they need? So we've got a bit.ly, uh, bit.ly slash Yair Rosenberg Music. Okay. And one last question. If tomorrow you had to quit either doing this music or Twitter, which is very important, which do you do? Oh, absolutely Twitter. Twitter is about a cacophony and music is about harmony. They give you a totally different sensibility and way of living your life. Um, and I think more people could do with more music and less Twitter. Well, yeah, you're Rosenberg. Good luck with your album. Less luck, I guess, then with your Twitter. And we'll see you around the office. Thank you so much. That was Yair Rosenberg, a.k.a. at Yair Rosenberg, talking to Josh Cross. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive.
We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, mailbox. To the mailbox, a deep dive into the unorthodox at tabletmag.com mailbox and to the listener line. We went looking for the best stuff that we haven't gotten to and we'll never get to all the great stuff, but here's a fun selection. Okay, to start, dear imaginary Jew friends who live in my ears. A strong start, by the way. That's a good salutation. Take take note, listeners. This one goes on to write, A Passover Dilemma. My mom's side of the family is sprawling with a godfather-esque patriarch who held his seven children, their spouses, and the subsequent generations in his loving iron grasp. For Seder every year, we would gather at my grandparents' enormous home with a dining room that could easily seat my dozen aunts and uncles, 20-some-odd cousins, and my own pack of siblings. The Seder moved at a brisk, business-like pace until everything dissolved into an assembly line to serve 30 bowls of matzo ball soup. Alas, Grandpa is now 95, and the past few years the Seders have been going off the rails. Since he retired at age 90, he's truly become an old man, and last year it was hard to watch as he kept losing his place in the Haggadah, mumbling through words that he used to proclaim in a Charlton Heston voice, and yet nobody wants to dethrone Grandpa. So what do I do? Do I bring my children and husband along for a pale shadow of a formerly wonderful past Seder in the interest of keeping the family together? More generally, what should people do about Seder leadership succession? Is a coup ever morally acceptable? Is this just normal and a somewhat sad part of families growing old together? Yours, a faithful listener. Oh, wow. I love the Charlton Heston allusion. It's like, you will pry this matzah out of my cold, dead hand. <laughs> Liel and Stephanie. So look, I love succession, but the really frustrating part about it is that Logan Roy doesn't let go, right? Like he needs to let the next generation lead. And I think that this is a thing that happens to any family, right? Like the patriarch or the matriarch, whoever leads the Seder, at a certain point, the kids get older and the kids grow up and the kids have kids. And like there is a, a, a natural point at which it should pass to the next generation. And it's awkward. I get it. It's It's definitely something weird that happens in every family. This is like a very extreme version of it. I don't want you to leave your family Seder. That makes me sad that your kids would grow up at a different Seder. But I do think there's a way to, to sort of try to get the next generation in there. I don't know. Is that, a, is that like a cop-out? Is that even not even possible? No, it's a very sweet sentiment. It's so hard for me. I, I really sort of was raised by wolves. I mean, in my household, this would have been normal. The whole Seder was one power struggle from beginning to end. So for me, that you would even consider not abandoning grandpa in some Viking fashion and putting him in like a boat made of matzah and, you know, taking it off on flames. I don't know. I, I hear her. 
I mean, she's very lucky because there's not going to be a Seder this year, so problem solved. But I have, problem I have no solved. solution. I have a slightly different take from from both of you, which is that yes, family Seders are are great. So Liel, I I don't endorse the um you know the send grandpa out on an ice flow of matzah brai. But Stephanie, I also think that. The, the mishpucha can't keep going generation after generation with everyone going to the same Seder. And Lador, Lador. Part of Right. Part of this is like you can fit in about three generations. You could fit in grandpa and his kids and then the letter writer. But now the letter writer has her own kids. And like, frankly, with four generations, it's not just that grandpa's declining. Even if grandpa weren't declining, a Seder of 50 people is a bad Seder. I've been to Seders of all sizes. And I can tell you the center does not hold at a Seder of like 50 people, 36 of whom are kids. It just, at a certain point, you have to break off and you say, you know what? My kids aren't going to know my second cousins. It's just not happening. And you start making your own traditions. And it sounds like this woman has a nice crew of, of four or five people in her own household and then pick up, you know, five or 10 other local people and pull some cousins or siblings over. Right. You're going to have a nice Seder of, of 10 to 15 people that'll be your own tradition. And that's hard. I think this listener's having trouble letting go of the family whence she came and saying, "I'm we as a couple, me and my spouse are ready to make our own traditions. Can I double down on being a jerk for a second? Do you even have to ask? Permission granted. People, <laughs> people are more civilized these days. People try to be nicer to each other. Uh, yeah, I agree with you completely, Mark, about, about the listener, about the letter writer. But also, let's take a moment to talk about grandpa, which is not a charitable <laughs> thing to do about a failing 95-year-old man. But like, I'm serious. If you don't possess the wherewithal to see this and sort of prepare for this and understand that, you know, life isn't a sprint or a marathon, but a relay race. <laughs> and you need to let the next generation actually grow into its own. This is what you get. You get a cold, hard abandonment. And you sit there alone and you set a table and ask, what did I do wrong? And this, Grandpa, this is what you did wrong. You didn't raise a family. You raised a cult of personality. I'm sorry, Grandpa. It's not how you do it. That's not the door of a door. It's just one door. A good leader actually trains the next generation, right? Correct. A good leader identifies people who are 13 or 14 or 22 or 24 or 45 and says, like, you step up this year. Maybe next year you co-lead with me. I mean, that's a really hard thing to do. But like, that's right. I, it is really funny that like leading the Seder is like a megalomaniacal <laughs> practice, right? And a very male one, we should say. We're hosting it at my place. Oh, and then I'll, I'll lead the Seder. Like <laughs> We'll have you over, but you have to listen in my way. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we read the letter from a Gentile woman whose Jewish fiance wanted her to keep a Jewish home, but couldn't tell her what the fuck that meant. <laughs> Otherwise known as just a Jewish male. We we got this reply. A few people weighed in on this. Here's one of them. Dear J. Crew, I enjoyed your discussion of what defines a Jewish home and the unfairness of the letter writer's future husband to not define what he means by that. For me, a Jewish woman married to a non-Jewish man, the most basic version of that is a mezuzah at the door and no Christmas tree or decorations ever. I used to teach Sunday school and always had the seventh graders who were also prepping for their bar mitzvahs. Many of them came from mixed marriages and their parents often celebrated everything, apparently thinking it would be fairer to the kids to, quote, give them a choice about religion. I can tell you unequivocally that there's nothing fair about the deep confusion and uncertainty these kids experienced as a result. You're absolutely correct that this couple needs to discuss this seriously before marriage and definitely before children. Thank you for, once again, raising an interesting, thoughtful issue and treating it and the seeker with respect. Edith Goldman. Why, thank you, Edith. Oh, I love this note. I mean, it's really interesting. By the way, like, no Christmas is like everyone's rule one, right? No, but like, I think <laughs> Edith raises like a really interesting point because I hear this. Look, this this is an issue that I have dealt with in my own life, with my own friends and my own family. This is something that's all around me and... This notion of like, 
oh yeah, we're, we're just gonna do nothing and then let the kids choose. Like the kids at some point at twelve is gonna be like. Well, you know, I really like uh, Aquinas's idea of negative theology, but <laughs> I kind of like Rambam better, so I'm going to go Jew. Like, what are you thinking? Like, it's so unfair to the kid. And Leah, let me take it a step further and say it's not just about religion. You owe your children a family culture. Absolutely. Not an oppressive one, not one that they are required to carry on when they leave the home. But you owe them family traditions, family rituals. You owe them an understanding of what your values and beliefs are. And and again, with love and with with trust, you set them free to do their own thing when they leave the house. And in fact, yeah. that can happen at a very young age. Like I don't tell my kids what to eat at a sleepover, right? It's it's they they make their own decisions when they're out of the house in a lot of things. But you owe them. It's it's not oppressive to say these are your mother's and my values, and. These are our traditions. They will be grateful that they have that foundation. And I think that this woman is marrying a man who hasn't, I think that she and her, this man have not, there's a lot they haven't thought through. And since they wrote, I'm going to say, have every conversation now. Don't wait. You need to figure this stuff out in advance, or at least know where each of you stands in advance. Amen, Selah. We got this voicemail answering the same question in more or less the same way. Hi, this is Leslie Hyman calling from San Antonio, Texas. Regarding the Jewish home question, I think you missed a meaning that can be obvious to anyone who has dated or married a non-Jew. A Jewish home in that context can simply mean a home that is not Christian. No crosses, no Christmas tree, no Christian art. I didn't have a ton of Jewish items when I got married. Most of what we have now was received or purchased over the years since we got married. And other than lighting Hanukkah candles and hosting the occasional Seder, Most of my Jewish ritual observance takes place outside of my home, but I certainly knew and explained that I would not be comfortable in a Christian home. Now, what do we think about this, though? I mean, Judaism as simply the absence of Christian stuff. I think this is something that I understand, but I think this on this show, we like push against that. Like we we don't define ourselves in a negative. We define ourselves as like, this is actually what we look. A mezuzah is is a positive, right? That's like, that's this is who we are. I mean, I now know what it's like to have a mezuzah. It is a statement of, of action, of positivity. We got a lot of feedback about our interview with Ruth Weiss, the Harvard professor and author of the unimprovably named The Schlemiel as Modern Hero, also strong Zionist. She spoke about Zionism and uh, the Arab people in ways that some of our listeners took exception to. One of them, Carl Hayden, wrote in from Dublin, if I heard a white Christian talking like this, and I have, I would rightly label them as a right-wing ethno-religious or ethno-nationalist. I'm not saying the interview shouldn't have aired, but I do think strongly that the views expressed should have been challenged for what they are. Someone who does not agree with Carl Hayden from Dublin was one Raymond La Liberté. He was born Raymond Fraternité, but you know. <laughs> La Liberté. Anglicized it. He writes in, Hi, Unorthodox Gang. Liel's interview with Ruth Weiss was one of the greatest interviews I have ever heard on a podcast. After I send off this email, I'm going to buy a copy of her book. Thank you. Thank you. Raymond La Liberté. Superbe. On the same episode, we interviewed Gentile of the Week, Antonia Ellison, a candidate for Congress in Mississippi who identifies as a Democratic Socialist. And Jeffrey Isaac from Northbrook, Illinois, wrote in, I just heard Stephanie Liel's, quote, interview, or should I call it an infomercial? She's running as a Democratic Socialist, but not a single question about the disturbing anti-Semitic leanings that many in the DSA have exhibited. Not just troubling comments by Omar, Tlaib, and Ocasio-Cortez, but also its overwhelming support of the movement to boycott Israel. I would call your questions softballs, but that would be an insult to a great game. Jeffrey Isaac, Northbrook, 
Illinois. I love that this one episode managed to get Liel giving softballs to Ruth Weiss and a Democratic <laughs> and Socialist. A Democratic Socialist. <laughs> um, <laughs> now here was a... But seriously, like, what people... Oh, oh my God. What do you think conversation is? What do you want us to do? Do you want us to be like, so jerk face makes sucks a lot. Why are you so dumb? Like, I want to talk to a person. Fine. I don't agree with one of them. I agree with the other. I want to give them a chance to actually express what they think. Like a civilized person. I could take it. I'm secure enough to take it. And furthermore, even if you think we're interviewing a bigot, your exposure to their bigotry is not going to cause you lasting damage. In fact, the the understanding that there are people who hold these views and hearing them explain them is is useful knowledge if you think you have to fight back. Though I will say that these interviews are all different, right? Like sometimes one of us does them, sometimes two or three of us. So like Liel with Ruth Weiss is a very different interview than the three of us, oh, for they example, loved each other. Ruth Weiss, right? Like the interviews lately that we've gotten the most like backlash or like negative response from was, I would say Carolyn Karcher, which was the woman with the anti-Zionist book, which was, and then there was the, the Christianity Today former editor who people said Mark was too soft on. And then there was Ruth Weiss. So I think it's really, really interesting, the, the, the interviews that push people's buttons. Right. And I think that for the most part, I'm supportive of us doing them. I mean, look, there's different ways to do an interview, right? Like, Liel, you let Ruth say her opinions, right? Like you didn't stop her from saying her opinions. And now I actually know exactly what she thinks, which is helpful to me. I, I will admit that together with Steve Martin and Pope Benedict XVI, Ruth Weiss is probably <laughs> one of the three people alive who I admire the most and and fear a little and love a lot. And so, okay, I'm, I'm willing to hear this kind of, well, m- maybe a different interviewer would have pushed back a little bit more on different things, but but I think the principle stands. The principle is like on this show. Look, we have enough shout fests, right? We have enough places where people just go to be jerky to each other and try to one up each other and try to make each other look bad. You could watch any political, you know, MSNBC or Fox News or CNN show. I really aspire to, and and it, honestly, it's difficult for me. It's a challenge that I need to personally kind of overcome to let just let people talk, learn from them, understand their point of view. Agree with it, not agree with it. I just want to hear them. Can, can I ask you guys as professional journalists, which I will never claim to be. Is that producer Josh Cross? That's producer Josh Cross again. Because oh the Zoom thing says Liel's mom, so it's very confusing <laughs> as to who you are. Uh, hold on, I get the accent. Give me a second. Serious question. So Mark Galley from Christianity Today and Ruth Weiss, we let both of them speak. And by letting both of them speak, going unchallenged, we learned so much more about what they believed. And the second with either one of them, if you fought with them, and Ruth Weiss, you're not going to fight with her. She's smarter than all of us, even if she's wrong about everything. So, like, let her talk, and you learn what she thinks. That's exactly right, Josh. That's exactly right. See, the thing is, what you learn doing a lot of interviews, which Liel and Stephanie have done, is some people, you, the goal is always to get the most interesting interview and for the listener to learn the most. Some people, you get that by letting them just talk and talk and talk. And sometimes they they sound terrific. And sometimes they hang themselves with the rope you let them weave for themselves. Right. Some people, you get the best interview by actually pushing them, right? So Carolyn Karcher was a very tidy, fastidious talker who needed to be pushed on certain things to really get to the bottom of what she believed, right? Like, it, I had to push her for us to find out that like Bernie Sanders, she actually has a soft spot for Fidel Castro, right? We Which learned was more from her 
Because you argued with because her. Because I pushed her. Whereas Ruth Weiss doesn't need to be pushed. In fact, when you just let her talk, she says all the stuff, dumb and smart, that she has to say. And so it's a, it's a judgment call. And if you pushed her, she'll shiv you. That's, that's right. It won't be I was terrified. It was like talking to Yoda. She'll shiv you. It's a you. judgment call so, that so- we as expert seasoned Jew casters make based on whom we're interviewing. So that's your answer, basically, to someone who says, "Well, you were you went hard on the left wing right. person, and you sort of were softballs to the right wing person." And, and then with the softballs that we were, you guys were just accused with with Antonia, they wanted us to talk to her about all sorts of people who may or may not be anti-Semitic. Antonia is a different, and I'm precious because I'm I know her, but it's really that we got an interesting take on what she's doing in a deep red state. Well, we don't need to talk about Rashida Tlaib. That's right. That's right. Um. Back to the mailbox. Hello, lovely ones. I love a letter that begins, hello, lovely ones. Hello, lovely ones. Your question from the potential convert who felt Christian guilt about leaving Jesus behind was a humdinger. I myself am an ex-Episcopalian priest who finally converted along with four of my children a little over five years ago to Judaism. Since then, we've had to move because of Nazi attacks on our old house. We've helped set up two new Jewish communities and are now engaged in a community building project that will see a new progressive mikvah, as well as up-to-date premises for our shul. So we're reasonably involved Jews over here in England, I would say. And yet, I still feel a pull or a tug. Not because I believe in any of the Christian faith or because I want to return, but perhaps because leaving Christianity means leaving Christ, leaving behind the myth that God could become incarnate here like us. Even though I've exchanged that for a much deeper and more fulfilling understanding of God, there's still a pang. Jesus is my ex-boyfriend, and like any ex, we had our favorite tunes. (laughs) Some guilt is understandable, but really that should lessen over time. And if it doesn't, over the course of several years, that's a sign that perhaps where you are is not where you need to be. Best wishes from the UK, Miriam Taylor. Oh, wow. Wow. I want a remake of High Fidelity only with Jesus as the ex-boyfriend because the playlist on that would be amazing. Dear Stephanie, Mark, and Liel, I always enjoy listening to your podcast while exercising early in the morning in the gym. Your interview with Ben Cohen was a lot of fun and the hot hand stuff was very interesting. I'm not claiming any connection between these ideas, but one of the sections of Talmud states that if a person tills a piece of land for three years in a row, that gives him ownership. A custom is derived from this. That if a person has the same aliyah to the Torah three weeks in a row, that becomes his chazakah, his right. And from then on, that aliyah becomes his property and can only be given to someone else if he's absent. So shall we call this a hot aliyah? Shalom, Morty Weisselberg. Morty, this is amazing. Um, I shared this with Ben and his jaw dropped and he was like, I guess I got to write another book. <laughs> and I, I want to say I did get such nice feedback on the Ben Cohen episode. I think I got a really nice note from Gary Weiss of the Scottsdale J Crew. Um, I'm actually on their unorthodox groupies text chain that I found out still? when we were down about. You're yeah, still of course. <laughs> it's my favorite text chain. But I think I've kind of stifled it a little bit because like if you had a text chain about a podcast and then you met the host and the host was like, I need to be in that chain, you probably are not going to speak as freely about that podcast. Right. They've gone quiet. Right. You know who is really bad this week? Mark and Liel. (laughs) It has really quieted down. um, But I got a really nice note, just this this idea that they felt like they knew me and now like to know Ben was really, really special. And I was like, that's amazing. I just finished his book last night. Sarah Fredman Ader chiming in. I bought it immediately after listening to the episode, finished it in day and a half. And I, I texted you, Stephanie, this, that he was very on the nose about what people can uh, achieve in times of plague when the world is shut down. So, you know, the next know. Shakespeare is just 
Waiting yes, in the wings. His, his argument in chapter two is that basically Shakespeare went on the best writing run of his life during the plague. That was excerpted in Slate, and it actually is like taken off across the internet. People being like, well, you know, Shakespeare wrote King Lear during the plague, so what are you doing sitting at home? <laughs> and friends, Stephanie's not going to say this, but I'm going to say it. Poor Ben Cohen has had his whole book tour canceled because of this COVID-19 nonsense. Why don't you all go out buy a copy? If, if, if everyone who listens to this podcast, if all several tens of thousands of you Go buy a copy right now. It will be a massive bestseller. Could we do that for Stephanie? Could you go to IndieBound or Amazon right now and buy a copy of The Hot Hand or two and just send this mother up the New York Times bestseller list next week? Let We, we, can, we can do that. Can we do that? Here, here. I really love that. And I'm telling you, anyone who buys this, send me the receipt. Just like send me a note. I will send you something from me and the cat. Let's have her eat her words because she's going to get 20,000 emails from people who bought the book. Let's make this- Talk about a hot hand. She'll have to (laughs) hand sign 700,000 copies. Now to the last bit from this week's mailbox. Is it the best voicemail we've ever gotten or just top five? Did it make us cry a little bit? A little bit. Dear Stephanie, Mark, and Liel, I've been meaning to write to you and thank you from the bottom of my heart for your show and how much it means to me. For a long time, I found myself disillusioned with my Judaism, and so I became nothing more than a bagel Jew. Eventually, I stumbled across your podcast through a friend of mine. In many ways, I credit Unorthodox with bringing me back into the fold. Through listening to the three of you laugh and joke and bicker and banter, I fell back in love with Judaism and with myself, and volunteered to begin taking myself to the shul every Friday after my daughter moved back to Israel. One day on the drive, Unorthodox was playing in my car, and my self-dub was incredibly enthralled and charmed, saying it reminded her of her old wireless shows only better and was more Jewish. Eventually, it became our tradition to listen to an Orthodox every Friday on the way to and from Temple and to have the Shabbat meal together. When she passed away last year, I decided the best way to honor her would be to keep listening and to maintain the path of my lifelong Jewish learning, and I can only credit you all for that. I feel I should also say that unlike many, I couldn't possibly place myself as a fan of just one of you, because you're all brilliant and beautiful human beings. Stephanie Taylor Swift, you literally remind me of every single amazing girl I went to uni with. And it's been so awesome to hear you lean in and then get married to a beautiful man and finally get a musician. My subject was so stressed about that. You wouldn't believe. Plus, as a fellow 30-something millennial, I feel like you just get me. Mark, thank you for being so kind and positive and exuberant and for getting angry about gourmet dogs and excited about frivolous things, but always real about the things that matter. I wish I could have had you as a professor again. Leah, I actually disagree with you on certain issues. Though less than a bleeding heart lefty like me probably should. Most importantly though, the journey towards keeping kosher and embracing the religious side of Judaism and wearing kippah in public has been really inspiring to me. And I have followed in your footsteps, even going so far as doing the death yoga. You are my freight. So mazel tov to three of you, and to Josh and Sarah, thank you for being the locus of positive change and peace in my life and the life of many other people. Shalom, friends. Yuval Milgram, like, really, I love you. This was the most amazing note. If this play continues, I think we're all moving down under and sharing, like, a ranch with Yuval Milgram. Yeah, let's do the Perth outpost. Yeah. Hoard some toilet paper because we're on our way, baby. You know, the thing I love to hear most about the show, and I obviously love people saying nice things about the show, um, 
when people say that they listen and their kids in college listen and they talk about it. Like that to me, there's so little in Jewish life that is intergenerational that feels like something that you and your parents or grandparents yes. share, right? Right. Because grandpa won't let you lead the Seder. That's the problem. Yes. You have grandpas who won't let you lead the Seder. There's a lot of uh, like, you know, there's this is for young families. This is for people in college. This is for people a who are on birthright. is for the dad and the son. Yeah, exactly. But the idea that he listened with his softa, like that is amazing. I love that. You've all... We love you, babe. Mazel tovs. Stephanie. I have a mazel tov to every person who is at home with their kids, because I I don't <laughs> understand what you do, especially when you're in places with small apartments and you don't have big houses and backyards. I just I'm amazed by it, and I think that like even all my colleagues who are working while having kids at home, and I know that like they're they're still doing their best to do their work, which is like really unbelievable. And then of course to all the people who can't stay home from work, whose jobs require them to be there, and just sort of cheering them on and supporting them during this very strange journey. Does Does Sarah or Josh either of you have a mazel tov? How about Stella gives a mazel tov? Stella, do you have a mazel tov? Do you want to say mazel tov to Mayor de Blasio for finally closing the diet? No. I want to say mazel tov to Gongsha because it's the only public... Okay, no, that's not that good. <laughs> that's kind of great. That's great. Wanna, all right, well, then stand up and give it here. You say, I want to give a mazel tov to Gongsha tea because it's the... Yeah. I want to give a mazel tov to Gongsha tea because it's the only bubble tea place I know that's still open. The girl needs her bubble tea. Yes! Stella Cross with the Mazel Tov. Uh, I have uh, three Mazel Tovs. First, uh, once again, the teachers at Ezra Academy in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, finest Jewish day school in Connecticut, and the one that educates my daughter, Ellie, whom I love. And they've been keeping the learning going so strong via Zoom. Ellie is learning so much. And huge congratulations. Mazel Tov to them. Also, uh, the twins, Hannah and Taya Kleinberger. Hannah and Taya had their Benot Mitzvah, their joint Benot Mitzvah last week at my shul. And it was the last public event I attended before uh, the the new dispensation uh, descended on us. They gave beautiful speeches. They read Torah beautifully. They led services beautifully. And they handled a sadly diminished crowd, not so diminished, but diminished with grace and uh, the poise of adulthood. And they are Jewish women to make the community proud. Uh, I was so proud uh, to be there. So to Hannah and Taya Kleinberger. And finally, another mazel tov to the man with the hot hand himself, Ben Cohen, who is going to sell 20,000 copies of this book in the next week. I didn't even so, ask you to do this. This is very nice. Big, big mazel tov to Mr. Stephanie Butnick, Ben Cohen, uh, wrote a book that I devoured in a day and a half. Sarah Fredman, Ader devoured in a day and a half. You are going to devour it even less time, whoever you are, because you're on lockdown. Go buy the book now. <laughs> Liel? Wow. Uh, so, yeah, you know, everyone who is doing the right thing these days, everyone who's working so hard, to get everyone, uh, to get all of us out there, continue a sense of normalcy, everyone in shuls, schools, uh, all the workers, everyone in Heschel, my kid's school, who's doing an amazing, amazing job. But I want to give one special mazel tov to my amazing daughter, Lily, who this week had her podcasting debut. She said some bad words on this podcast a few years back. But this week, she uh, realized her dream of participating in what I really think is the greatest kids podcast out there right now it's called pants on fire it's hosted by deborah goldstein and produced by our former producer noah levinson uh, and it's basically kind of a game show for kids where there are two 
so-called experts. One of them is an expert. The other is a liar. Lily's topic was cheerleading, and she worked very hard to study everything about it and rocked it. And if you stick uh, for a bit after the credits, you could hear a little bit of Lily Leibowitz being a junior podcaster. Lily, Lily. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Go there to read stuff. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call our listener line and leave a voicemail, 914-570-4869. To advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. Wear some unorthodox swag, some gear, some sweatshirts. Nobody will see you wearing it except on Zoom, but wear it anyway. Go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sar Fredman Ader. During the lockdown, we're doing a lot of content on Facebook, so it's a great time to join our Facebook group. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbis Moshe Haddad, Gershom Mendel Gorelick, and Abraham Hazan, all of Milan, Italy. Hang in there, gentlemen. And we come to you from Argo Studios, which we miss dearly. Shalom, friends. Tell us. Our human child contestant is an eight-year-old who loves everything about baseball. I'm talking everything. Ooh. Lily Leibovitz. Hi, Lily. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm so glad. Welcome to Pants on Fire. We're so happy that you're here. You love everything about baseball. You like watching it or playing it? Both. That's cool. Do you have a favorite baseball team? Yes, the New York Mets. The New York Mets. And if, do you have a favorite player on the team? Noah Syndergaard. Do you like Mr. Matt? Yeah, I was stuffy of him. Oh, yeah. Well, he and I went to high school together. (laughs) I don't know about that. Yeah. And tell us, I hear that there is a forbidden word in your house, and it starts with the letter Z. uh, And it is perhaps a vegetable. Am I getting close to something you don't care for? Uh, Zebra broccoli. (laughs) (laughs) It might be zucchini. This is something you do not like, correct? Blah. Nope. Not in any which way. Not even zucchini ice cream? Ew. (laughs) Do you like saying zucchini? Nope. It's kind of fun. A (laughs) zucchini! All right, well, we want to know some more fun facts about you, Lily, but we're going to do it the way we do it on Pants on Fire, playing two truths and a lie, okay? So you're going to tell us three facts about yourself. Two of those facts will be true, one will be a lie, and we have to figure out which one is the lie. Are you ready? Yeah. Excellent. What are your three facts? Um, so my first one is my dream is to go to West Point. West Point, okay. I know absolutely everything about Harry Potter. Mm. <laughs> and number three is my grandparents live in Spain. In Spain? Oh, in space. Wow. No, not space. Oh. Spain, the country. Oh. That would be fun. Okay, what do you think, Lisa? Which one of those things is a lie? She said earlier that she knew everything about baseball. Correct. And now she's trying to come back and say she knows everything about Harry Potter. She is saying that. That's like a lot of everything. That's so true. So I think that one is the lie. Uh, that's fair. I that's think there's logical. one thing she doesn't know about Harry Potter. Okay, maybe so. All right, <laughs> Lily, which one of those things is a lie? Um, The lie is my grandparents live in Spain. <gasps> So you're saying you know everything about Harry Potter? Yes. Okay, let's see. Do you know what Harry Potter does? 
Yeah, he's a wizard. Ah, <laughs> she right. does know everything. Hello, unorthodox listeners. Noah here. You may remember me from such stories as your Jewish grandfather didn't really get his name changed to Dallas Island, or your Jewish grandfather's moil didn't really circumcise the British royal family. But when I'm not on the Jewish Mythbusters beat, I am producing Pants on Fire show where each week we bring in real human children contestants to figure out who is lying and who is telling the truth. On this week's episode of Pants on Fire, Lily Leibovitz returns with her brother Hudson to figure out who is lying about the culinary arts. So if you're trying to stay sane and self-quarantine, go check out Pants on Fire wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Thanks so much.